This is Murder Scotland, a podcast that looks at famous and not so famous murders that happened in Scotland or were committed by people with a connection to Scotland. We'll just see how tenuous we can get. My name is Julie Lamont. Me and my co-host Alan Nicholl will look at these crimes with 21st century eyes and discuss, are they really what we thought they were? This week's episode is about Peter Manuel, Scotland's technically first serial killer who murdered eight people in Scotland over a period of two years. This is going to be a two-parter, so this first part we're going to give you a background on Peter Manuel and his upbringing, Um, and then part two we're going to focus on more of the crimes that Peter Manuel committed and then how he eventually became hanged by the state. Peter Manuel. How do you pronounce it? Manuel or Manuel? Well, there's one very irritating commentator who... Calls him Manuel, <laughs> as if he's out of <laughs> faulty you know, towers. Faulty towers. <laughs> he's, he's well. He was from the west of Scotland, so it was Manuel. Manuel. Okay. In fact, it's almost a sort of M E N Y I L sort of noise. Yeah. Manuel. <laughs> Manuel. Manuel. Okay. Whereas there's this guy in the telly who keeps on saying Peter Manuel, and I'm thinking, what? <laughs> Sounds awful posh. It does, it? isn't it? <laughs> and he certainly wasn't posh. <laughs> so Peter Manuel. Um, you you know a book about him as well. You're quite prolific in <laughs> yeah. crime writing these days. Well, that was the very first one that I'd written because um, I remembered it. I remembered when he was executed in 1958 and there's a friend of mine who was on the go at the time and he said that his mother and him and his brother went for a walk um, because they knew he was going to be hanged that morning. What, and to go and see the hanging? Or no, what? no, they, they just went for a walk because they didn't want to hang around the house, if you excuse the phrase. Um, they just thought, well, I was not getting out because uh, even though he was an evil serial killer, they felt as a sort of mark of respect that they should leave the house and, and go. Oh, wow, okay, to like, think about something else. I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, just to go for a walk in the countryside or whatever. Um I remember my mum and dad talking about the, the case in very hushed tones and my mother and my father spelling words out and uh, I didn't know what they meant so I had to go and ask my sisters what, what they meant. Um, they were quite scandalised by the case because it was extremely well reported, in fact all the way around the world. But Peter Manuel um, was hanged in 1958 in July and I had written this book for about four years, just on a sort of interest-only basis. And um, eventually I thought, well, this is a perfect time. It's 50 years after the yeah. execution. So I, by other means, I managed to get a publisher in Edinburgh called Black and White and Campbell Brown. There's a guy called Campbell Brown who works for Black and White. Um, <laughs> Campbell... I was fair taken with the idea. He thought it was it was good, so it was good enough to publish. Um, so it's been one of these things that um, I've thought about quite a lot because it did affect uh, the west of Scotland. He was a bogeyman in the west of Scotland. And was he Scotland's sort of first, I was going to say sort of first serial killer because there was obviously Birkenhead and... The legend of Sonny Bean. Yeah, which yeah. Is probably uh, not true. It's probably not true. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was regarded as the first serial killer because the 
the phrase itself was uh, only coined just before that in, in America. Ah, okay. And in fact, it might have even been after that. It was just some sociological, criminological thing that they said, you know, a serial killer is, and uh, it just uh, basically um, fell into place as far as Manuel was concerned because he was charged with eight murders. And he, he's like a true serial killer. I mean, he oh, yeah. was doing it for kicks, right? Not your sort of Birkin hair doing it for money. Oh, no, there was no no suggestion it was it was for anything other than his own, sort of own enjoyment, I would think. Um, he was a, definitely a, a very strange guy. Um, but I'll go, go through the murders individually. Okay. Um, because um, each one, well... He built up to the, the murder and it was quite clear that what got him off was the idea that people were terrified of him. He was only five foot four, Peter Manuel. Wow. He was a, he was quite a small guy and he pretended he was a Golden Gloves boxing champion in America. All this sort of stuff. He, he, he just told lies about himself. These days people call that small dick energy. Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly what he had probably. Yeah. Um one of the other reasons I suppose I get involved in it is I used to know a guy who um, was a sort of reformed gangster. I've probably talked about him before. And he said, um, you know, Peter Manuel, I knew Peter Manuel. Um, he was in a certain club that all the, the gangsters used to meet up at. And um, Peter Manuel came in and he had a gun in his pocket. And he said he was trying to impress all the gangsters at the bar. <laughs> With a gun? The, the, well, he was <laughs> Like they hadn't sh- seen one before. Yeah, well, he was sort of showing off that he had a gun. And this is so, kind of like not that long after the Second World War, so probably was There was guns everywhere. Guns there were guns everywhere. <laughs> right. And uh, it was, in fact, it was a memento that people took with them when they left the forces. They would take, especially the First World War, it was just take your gun with you. Um, but on this occasion at the Gordon Club, um, what they, they, they did to him was they took the gun off him and then kicked him in the arse and threw him out the door. <laughs> so whatever problems the guy had were probably magnified. Yeah. Yes, because of that. He was um, he was a very complex guy. He was born in New York, of course. Oh, really? So he's an American? He was actually American by birth. Um, his parents came from Lanarkshire. That feels like quite an unusual thing for Americans to immigrate here then. Well, his father, Samuel, uh, tried to get work in Detroit and it didn't really work out for him because they had left uh, Manuel's brother, James, at home. Ah, okay. And they eventually decided it wasn't going to work in America. So they came back and originally I think they came back to a place like Coventry and then they went back to Lanarkshire. Um, but Manuel must have felt, I suppose, right from the start that he was a, an outsider everywhere he went because he was an outsider in the States. Uh, he was an outsider in Coventry. How old was he when he moved back, do you know? I think he was about seven or eight or something. Um, I was just thinking, like, would, would they have a different accent? Or, I mean, it's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? I, th- I think he probably did, because uh, there is a recording of him, and he's got a real genuine West of Scotland 
Nedish accent. Nedish. And uh, he. We'll have to explain what that is because do you remember Ned, we do have we do have some listeners that are not in Scotland. Well, um, a Ned in Glasgow is somebody who thinks they're a hard man, and they. It's a good way to describe. They tend it. to be. Uh, they tend to break the law, basically. Yeah, in England they call them chavs. Yes, uh, it's, it's similar to that. Except it's got a long history of neddishness in, in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, people are, are neds. And everyone who lives in Glasgow just said the guy's a ned. And everyone knows exactly what they mean. And neds are probably quite classic small dick energy, really. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But um, he was born in New York on the 15th of March, 1927. Um, his name was Peter Thomas Anthony Manuel, and the reason he was called Peter Thomas Anthony because his mother was a very devout Catholic, oh, right, and that was okay. the names of the saints that she was hoping would would look after him in the afterlife. Oh gosh! And of course, um, that's a sad setup, isn't it? Because you're just sad. like, oh yeah, that I mean, mother had so much hopes. Didn't she did. She? she did. And oh, of course, the, the other thing about Manuel was. He'd have brilliant imagination. He really had because he, he was able to come up with all sorts of nonsense at his trial. And it was all down to the fact he could imagine this or that. And he wrote stories. Oh, really? There, there might be typewritten stories somewhere in somebody's loft. And they're written by Peter Manuel. They'd be bestsellers now because of uh, the notoriety of Peter Manuel. Well, depends how good they are, I guess. Well, apparently he had a go at being a journalist and all this sort of stuff. Uh, he just couldn't stop committing crimes. He was into housebreaking. He was into everything, uh, serious assault, uh, attempted rapes, that sort of stuff. And th- did he start this pretty much as soon as he got back to Lanark? Or was that later? I it mean- was later because he, when he was in um, Yorkshire and Coventry, um, he was getting into bother all the time and he ended up in Borstal. Oh, wow, okay. And uh, in fact, I think I referred to that at some point in the story, in that he had decided he was just going home and home for him was Lanarkshire. Uh, so when he was in Coventry, he um, he didn't understand anyone's accent. and He, he tried didn't to get- understand? Oh, I get yeah, It's such a different time, isn't it? Because... Now, probably in the, U- in the UK, you hear everybody's accent on the TV, right? You do, but in those but days... not then. Um, in those days, they would have struggled to understand his accent and he didn't understand a word that the teacher was saying. Oh. Now, according to what they were saying in the, about his educational achievements, he was really bright. He was, he was actually very, very good. Um... Very clever, but just totally misguided. You kind of wonder what what went on in his life, though, that turned him into somebody that got off on hurting people or scaring people. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's you need a you know a psychiatrist to to help yeah. you out. But I referred to the psychiatrist as well uh, at some point later on. Um, what I did was I did a sort of potted version of the story and just before I started writing uh, this version of it I started thinking that 
I suppose if you're born in 1927, in theory you could still be alive. So it could be, you'd have been 96 yeah. Yeah. this year. Um, and I try to imagine them in some old folks' home or uh, more likely uh, in a prison somewhere, um, trying to impress people with his triumphs against the, the police because he hated the police. The police were his deadliest enemy. And uh, his stories about his boxing career in the States. I mean, he was only six or seven <laughs> or something when he moved, but he was a Golden Gloves champion and all this sort of stuff. Just he made out. It was just It was completely made up. Um, maybe he was compensating for something in his life, but uh, he had to eventually, um, you know, tell so many lies that they came back and, and bit him. Um, as I say, his final trial was in the salt market in Glasgow's the North Court in May 1958 in the High Court, and he faced eight murder charges. Um, he had murdered eight people. Um, what I do is I look back at like 1958, and there was a case that was reported. Um, it was in Dundee. It was a man charged with seriously assaulting two women, one of them his wife. He'd returned home unexpectedly to find her and another woman engaged in, quotes, those unnatural practices to which the name lesbianism has been given. <laughs> That's directly from the judgment. What? That's, that's an unnatural practice. Um, <laughs> the question for the court was whether provocation was an appropriate consideration uh, or not, because if it was like a sort of crime of passion type of thing. Right. If you come home and found your partner uh, having sex with somebody else, you know, certainly not in this country as much, but certainly in, in like France or yeah, somewhere. Yeah, he'd get away with you know, it. The crime of passion, they understand that. Um, what they had to do here was to try and work out whether that amounted to provocation because she wasn't actually having an affair in 1958. All she was doing was engaging those unnatural practices called lesbianism. <laughs> Stop, what? Um, what? Uh, she was clearly having an affair. What the hell? Well, not really, because it totally flummoxed the court, um, because they couldn't work out whether that amounted to an affair or not. Because oh, my it was... God. It flummoxed the court because they have like clearly didn't understand a woman's anatomy. <laughs> if you think about it, uh -huh, yeah. they clearly couldn't have understood that they were like enjoying it. <laughs> what? I can't get my head around this one. But it was, it was regarded as an unnatural practice in 1958. I know that you've got like some really bad stories about like the past being a different planet, but this is <laughs> up there. This is totally up there. Well, it did happen, and it was Lord Guthrie, I think, who summed up the situation by having to decide uh, himself whether this amounted to uh, provocation. Uh, he ruled. Lesbianism is not adultery, <laughs> but I do not think that anyone would hold this as a less serious infringement of the duty of a wife than adultery is. Right. So, so he's saying it's not adultery, but it's as bad as adultery. Um, 
I d- I d- That's not the way you put it. He said it's a serious infringement of the duty of a wife. Uh, it's not to like be licking somebody out. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's right, yes. That's amazing. I mean, I'm like so shocked, but I'm st- like, what? Well, it just makes me laugh so much at all these like old white guys were sitting in the room having to talk about the intricacies of this. I know. I know it was it was a totally different planet, but um, it does beg the question: Do you think wives these days have any duties towards their husband? Do you think that husbands have duties towards their wives? Like what? Oh yeah, they've got to do as they say. <laughs> I think the world has moved on, and people are. So, I mean, I was going to say, I think they're supposed to be equal partners. It's quite hard to be equal partners when one of you is the, the one that gives birth, the one has to do the breastfeeding and all that kind of thing. But I would say on everything else, everything else should be equal partners. I'm not sure I'm agreeing with all of this, but I know <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. You don't agree. Their relationships are equal partners. Oh, yes, I think so. It's just... Um, you know, especially now we're talking about trans rights, etc. In, in, <laughs> in Scotland, um, I mean, how far do we take this? Do we take it that because nature's endowed us with different bodies, that um, we should do our best to assimilate the sexes? How do you assimilate, though? I mean, a lot of it is just it's. It's cultural norms rather than biological norms. The things that people think are feminine or masculine, mm-hmm. that's that's society has decided that. That's uh-huh. not uh-huh. like 3,000, 4,000 years ago, if you landed in civilization, I know that biological women would be doing the child reading, but there's always been trans people. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's always been that element. So, I'd, yeah, I mean, I don't think that the men would all be sitting about wearing blue, like, you know what I mean, scratching their... Oh, maybe they would be, I don't know. <laughs> scratching their asses, like, I don't... I don't know, it's hard, isn't it? But I just think a lot of the things like makeup and hair and stuff that gets attributed to women and football and stuff like that that gets attributed to men, that's just... That's society that's decided I that. I think that's right, and I don't think it's just been the preserve of women to um, look after themselves cosmetically yeah. or whatever. I think men have done that down the centuries as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah, when you look at like clothes in museums and you see some of the stuff that guys used to wear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah it was much heels. fancier than what women would wear. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. In certain parts of Italy, it's uh, there's only men shops that I could see. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know because the, the men dress up and the women are quite dull by comparison. What? You're just talking like the nation of Italy. <laughs> what? <laughs> but anyway, what's that got to do with manual, manual, man, manual, manual, manual? M a n y i l is the right way to remember. Right, manual. Manual. Um. Another report that I read about in the papers from that year uh, tackled the issue of equality. Equality between the sexes. Since we're on the topic, right? (laughs) The headline was, Sex Equality, Not Likely. 
The story related to a gathering of 5,000 women who had convened in the Albert Hall to debate the question of equal rights following separation or divorce. This is 1958, remember? Oh my gosh. Um, the report ended with the startling news that the Assembly voted down the idea of equality with a bang. That's how they put it. Women voted to uh-huh. not be have equal rights to men. On divorce. In the 1950s. 1958. Uh, do you know what? Like, women can be misogynist too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just interesting to put this into context, I suppose, because... Um, there's a 5,000 women and they voted against equality on divorce or separation. and Against for divorce? What? <laughs> no, no, it was just the idea of equality on divorce. Yeah, yeah. But so I mean, you don't like, get an equal share. Yeah, why? What, they wanted less, they wanted more. What? I don't really get this. This well, is so the, weird. The report said, um, of course they did. In other words, of course they voted that way. No woman in this country wants sex equality. No woman ever did or ever will. It makes, I mean, okay, like, you know, my brain is blown because I just can't get my head around this because the, pla- the past is a different planet, as we say every week. But what? So they wanted equality. They didn't want equality in divorce. But are we saying that they didn't want equality because they wanted more? Than the man, or the no, no. It was quite, it was quite definite. They said that um, the idea of equality was not what they wanted. They like were they collectively high? Did somebody put LSD into the tea that day? Like what? Why would they not? I don't. I can't even comprehend. Well, a lot of women, I suppose, in nineteen fifty-eight, because it was so near to the end of the Second World War. They were used to a sort of male-dominated society because mostly men had been fighting. Uh, women weren't allowed to, to fight. Yeah. There were nurses and, you know, Royal Army Medical Corps people, but they weren't in the front line. Right. And I think when people come back from the war, it was really just a sort of underlined the fact it was a male-dominated society. Or maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into oh, that. I don't know. It's just so weird. Um, there was another story from July 1958. This was in the English Midlands. And it seems a hotel in the, the Midlands charged drink prices according to skin colour. A half pint of beer cost eight pence if the purchaser was white and a shilling if the buyer was black. What? This this was reported in 1950, July 1958. Oh my god! Um, what is wrong with people? I mean, to be this one, this one is the least shocking because I'm pretty sure there's there's still places that would do that if they could. Do you know what I mean? Like there's oh, yeah, still massively you're probably racist right. places. Yeah, but nowadays, you know, these people have to keep quiet at the very least. Uh, if they practice racism then it's got to be done surreptitiously now. If they practice racism, it makes it sound like if they practice religion. (laughs) Yeah, but a lot of them, you know, as you say, probably have got strong feelings about these things and they probably hanker after the the sort of society we did have. Um, I mean, especially when you look at the government, right? I mean, there's there's some of the crazy-ass shit they come out with. uh Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, I know. 
Um, and this story, the hotel owner explained he was trying to discourage non-whites from using the premises because white patrons did not like drinking with them. What? Um, it was apparently one shilling-paying customer um, told the reporter he felt insulted. Hey, do you know what? See if the story is that Manuel went round and killed these people. I'm going to have some sympathy for him. Yeah, but he specialised in women who were asleep. Yeah, okay. Um, so my surprise is really that there was any shilling-paying customers drinking there. Yeah. Because if you go there and it's eight pence for a white person and a shilling for well, a black person. I'm surprised these get customers full stop. Quite uh, frankly, it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, it must have come from the customers, I suppose, because the customers must have wanted it that way. Do you think, though? I mean... I think they must have, because uh, he put this into practice. But if he's just a big old racist, he could just be imposing his own views on everybody. He could be, yeah, I suppose he could be. But um, he was genuinely trying to discourage um, black people from drinking in this particular and this hotel. And this is in England? Or Scotland? This, it was in English Midlands. I mean, how many black people are in the English Midlands in the 1950s? That's the other thing. Like. Very few. It was in July 1958 that Manuel went to the gallows in Berlini Prison in Glasgow. Um, he can been convicted of seven of the eight murder charges. And had he been acquitted by some mischance... Police officers from Newcastle-upon-Tyne are waiting to arrest him for the murder of a, tra- a taxi driver called Sidney John Dunn. Um, I had a good look at that case, and I took the view that there was very, very little evidence against Manuel for uh, Sidney John Dunn's murder. Can, can we just backtrack from <laughs> So see the three stories about the crazy-ass shit that happens in 1958. That's We're setting up... That 1958 is mental. <laughs> so, different. It's different. It's different, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> different completely mental. Yeah, yeah. Planet and a whole other world full of completely nuts people. Oh, yeah. Doing yeah. awful, awful things. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I, good. Away with it. <laughs> right, I get it. Um, so, back to the taxi driver. The taxi driver, Sidney John Dunn, if I remember correctly, had picked uh, a customer up. Um, at the main station in Newcastle and he had taken him to a place called Edmund Byers in County Durham. Right. And the theory was that Manuel had got the taxi because he was in Newcastle around about that time looking for a job. Uh-huh. Um, he got into the taxi and because his accent was so thick, that the taxi driver thought he said Edmund Byers and he, in fact he said Embra. What? Edinburgh. And a taxi. He wants to get that. a taxi from Newcastle to Edinburgh. Yeah, that is the theory and that's why I don't that go with this at all. no sense whatsoever. You need to be a multimillionaire. Mm. And also, even if you were a multimillionaire, you could just drop <gasps> into a normal taxi and say that. Because you could get a train. You know, that's right, you could yeah. get a train. Um, so it was very thin the evidence, but every time you read Mandel's story somewhere else, nobody's actually looked at the the evidence against him for the Sydney Dunn murder. Right, and I mean, uh, apparently a, a coroner's jury 
in County Durham decided that he was responsible for it. But it's a, it's a bit like saying, you know, because he's a mass murderer and because he happened to be in Newcastle at the time, the two fit. They didn't really. Right, OK. So you think this wasn't one of his? I don't think it was. I'm pretty convinced he did not murder Sidney John Dunn. OK. Because um, this, is, this, is this is a man as well. You said that his other murders were women that were asleep. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So wait, he's just, they, the, the police just decided, cause, wait, the police are saying that he did this murder, but this is completely out of the realms of his, his normal murdering path? Yeah, because he suddenly done was shot in the back of the head. And, I mean, Manuel was capable of doing that. And he was stabbed, I think. Um, the headlights of the vehicle were smashed and the vehicle sat off the road for nearly a day before anyone even thought of stopping. They found Mr Dunn's body in um, some um, bushes nearby and it looked as if he'd been dragged uh, from the taxi. Um, But I, right from the start, looked for the forensic evidence. Yeah. I looked for you know, the reason that the, the jury had said, the coroner's jury had said that they thought Manuel was uh, responsible. And it was to do with threads that could have come from his jacket or been transferred from Mr Dunn's jacket or whatever. But this is in the 1950s, so it's not... It was the 50s. Yeah, so they're not looking it, it at wasn't. it on a molecular level. No, no, yeah. they, they weren't. It was just very rough. And as I say, when a serial killer's in town and there's a murder, then you just put two and two together and you get, you know, nine. And their whole story was that the the taxi driver hadn't understood his accent and so some sort of fight had occurred. Yeah, I think that was... <clears throat> um, as you, you reacted to that, by saying, you know, you'd have to be a multimillionaire to travel from Newcastle to Edinburgh in a taxi. Yeah, you would. How much would that cost? But... Um, <laughs> I don't think there's any chance that Manuel got into a taxi and said Edinburgh. You know, as they say in the West of Scotland, it's sort of E M B R A. Yeah. It's Embra. <laughs> and, you know, how that became Edmund Byers, I don't know. Um, but suffice to say, had he been acquitted of the eight murders, he was actually convicted of seven out of the eight. Um, they were waiting to try him in Newcastle. I mean, even, right, just for people that don't know the location of Newcastle and Edinburgh, <laughs> I mean, even on the train, the modern super fast train, it's not super fast because it's still in the UK, so it's mm-hmm. fairly shit. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it would still be, I would imagine you'd be on the train for almost two hours to get from Edinburgh to Newcastle, maybe an hour and 40 minutes-ish. Yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. That, and that's today. Right. And if you were driving, I would, I'd have thought, I don't know, three plus hours, I would have thought. Maybe not as long as that. Know. I think it's the A1 that you go down. Yeah. And it's not a great road, but uh, I think you could do it in less than, well, you could do it in a couple of hours. You think two, sure. right, yeah. two hours in a modern car on a modern road. Oh, in yeah. 1958, when people had to, as you told me the other week, people had to wear coats in their cars because they didn't have heating. Mm-hmm. Special car coats. <laughs> yeah, car coats. That's right. He he mm. thought he was going to pay a taxi driver to drive 
two hours there, two hours back, and there, wa- there wasn't going to be any discussion about that. He was just going to like set off and drive. <laughs> That's just nuts. I know, I know. It's, uh, it really was hammering the the case to fit the yeah the, case the situation. Peter Manuel. So you think I felt. he didn't do eight murders? You think he did seven? Oh no, he was he was convicted of seven out oh, of the right. eight. Okay, but this this, this one was would have been in Newcastle, right? Because it didn't have jurisdiction north of the border, right? So okay. he was convicted of seven out of eight in Glasgow, but had he escaped from that, uh, had he been acquitted, say, you know, by some miracle, then they were waiting to try him in Newcastle, um, on the basis that they said he had murdered uh, Mister Dunn. Yeah, it's just, it doesn't, I, I'm kind of with you, it doesn't sound right. It just it, sounds there's something weird. not right about that, but at the same time, um, any time you read sort of potted versions of Peter Manuel's life, they say he was he was guilty of the murder of Sidney John Dunn. I don't think so. No. I don't think so. I just feel like anybody that's ever gotten a taxi <laughs> would know that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, can you imagine? Right, I mean, seriously, can you imagine we flagged, even if we wanted to go to Edinburgh, right, which is like an hour from here in Glasgow, mm. if we just flagged a taxi down the street and we were like, can you take us to Edinburgh an hour away, they would be like, oh no, pal, I've got to go home for my dinner. Uh-huh. Do you know, there would be some kind of discussion. They wouldn't just go to drive us an hour or they'd go, sure, I'll do it, but there'll be a, like a surcharge of uh-huh. an extra hundred oh, they'll, quid. They'll give you a, a flat rate. Or yeah, something. yeah, exactly. Say a hundred pounds or the, something. Yeah, maybe. there would be some kind of massive like discussion about it. You uh-huh. couldn't just, even in Glasgow, you couldn't just get in a taxi and go, Edinburgh. No, no. <laughs> and also yeah. they'd go like, where the hell in Edinburgh? It's a bloody. It's not huge, but it's not. It's a bloody city. Ah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. I know. I just the, there's something not feasible about the the, the story. Um, I go on to say that a further insight into the 1950s mindset was a, an act called the Homicide Act of 1957. I feel like we should get some kind of like little jingle for when you <laughs> crazy story about the past. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. The Homicide Act. The Homicide Act uh, of 1957 was passed um, because there were two high profile English cases that had given a boost to the campaign to abolish capital punishment. Right. I mean, that's not something that you'd ever remember, capital punishment. As I say, I was six when Manuel was hanged. And was he kind of one of the last or? No, I think it was 1962 was the last hanging. I I can't believe it's as late as that, actually. I I would have thought, thought, isn't it? Yeah. My head, Um, it must have been like sort of around the Second World War, but that would be No, it was 1962. It was somebody called Burnett in Aberdeen who was hanged for murdering his uh, girlfriend's husband and um, he just went round and fired a shotgun at him and uh, he was the last one he was the last one to be hanged wow Um, however the 1957 Homicide Act uh, was after um, one particular case it was called the Craig and Bentley case from 1953. Do you remember that one at all? No. Craig and Bentley were the two who were trying to be terribies. Um, they had a gun uh, 
and Bentley um, had learning difficulties. He wasn't that bright and um, he was the one who was hanged whilst the 16-year-old who had shot two policemen. Yeah. Um, he he was allowed to go free because he was too young to be hanged. So they, <laughs> they hanged the guy that didn't do the murders? Uh-huh, yeah. What? Um, How do they justify that? They justify it by, by saying that they were acting together, therefore it was part of the plan. I mean, is this a sort of an exception? Like, I mean, could people just have been hanged for being part of a group if one of the people... Oh, yeah, if you, if you were acting together. And in this case, the magic words that apparently Bentley had said to Craig was, let him have it, Chris. This is somebody with learning difficulties as well. Oh, my God. And what this he is... was meant was possibly the gun. Let him have the gun. Oh right! So Instead he wasn't of even like let him have it. I'm gonna like uh-huh. kill him. Uh-huh. Like let him have the oh, what? There's, there's two ways of looking at that. Yeah, you know? yeah, you're right. I mean, you you might turn around and say let him have it means give him both barrels, sort of thing. Oh, that's shocking. Whereas, uh, according to 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 Bentley, um, and his defence, um, it'd be really unfair to hang him. And Craig, who'd carried out the shootings, yeah. Um, I think one policeman was murdered, and another policeman was badly injured. Um, they took the view that um, they'd been acting together. So, um, it just it feels a bit <clears throat> like mob mentality. Like we just we want to we want to hang somebody because yeah. of this horrible thing. Well, it was a murder of a policeman, basically. Yeah. And uh, the, I suppose um, in 1953, which was obviously five years before Manuel was was hanged, um, as I say, it was close enough to the Second World War for people to think that life was a bit cheaper. I presume. Jeez. Because... Uh, Craig and Bentley was was the the main reason behind the Homicide Act of 1957. One of the problems with the Homicide Act of 1957 was, and it was a UK statute, it wasn't just in Scotland or England, it was the whole country. Is that quite unusual for there to be something like that across the whole UK? not, Not that unusual. I mean, the Misuse of Drugs Act, for instance, 1971, is a UK statute and yeah. it applies both sides of the border. It's it's not applied exactly the same in both sides of the border, but in um, in this instance, it, it translated to the Scottish court considering somebody like Manuel, who said that it was only a capital offence if it was done, for instance, um, if was in, in furtherance of theft. So, for instance, if you're um, mugging somebody mm-hmm. and you get a gun or you get a weapon and you murder that person, whether accidentally or not, the fact that it was in, it was motivated by, by theft, uh-huh. um, then that meant it was a hanging offence. Oh, my goodness. And... You know, wow. when you actually um, look at the crimes of Peter Manuel, 
which was 1958. And in my view, it's quite absurd to say that Manuel was motivated by... By uh, theft. By theft. Yeah. When he was clearly motivated by some deep-seated need to see particularly young girls um, upset. Yeah. So it's nothing to do with theft. Yeah. Nothing to do with theft. But did they do it on a sort of theft theft attempt so they could hang him? Um, well, in the case of one of the murders, uh, well, there was a family of three were murdered. Um, he stole some money out of the house. Oh, right. so and that's didn't. how they, they caught him in fact. Yeah, it just wasn't his motivation. But it wasn't I'm sure it wasn't his motivation. And I'll go into that. It's it's called the smart murders. As far as he was concerned, um the for instance, Anne Neelands was what, seventy seventeen in January nineteen fifty six and he murdered her uh, in a golf course in East Cobride. Is this his first murder or this is the first one that they could they could prove um, was his. Well, the, the to to be fair, the judge just took it away from the jury, even though he had virtually confessed to the police that he had been involved in this. He was working in that area as well in the gas board, right? And um, he terrified this girl. He made her run across. Uh, she, she lost her shoes because she was so terrified. Ran across a muddy field. Oh, and he, he beat her brains in, basically. Oh, my God. Uh, with a big piece of wood. And, you know, the jury would then have to contort themselves mentally to understand that, in fact, he was motivated by theft. Because he, he did steal stuff out of her purse, but that's only after he killed her. Yeah. I mean, she might have had nothing in her purse. Yeah, you don't yeah, know. Yeah. But at the end of the day... It didn't really matter because that was the one that Lord Cameron took away from the jury. He said that there was insufficient. But then, I mentioned this later as well, he had, he had seven other capital uh, murders to consider. So wait, the taxi driver would have been nine, number nine then? Not... Yeah. Oh, right, OK. The taxi driver could have ah. been a ninth person, yeah. Wow. If, if he had committed if it that. Was, yeah. Yeah, but I'm not sure about that. Um as I say... So the, uh, the the first one was this this woman, what was her name? Anne Nielsen. You Anne Nielens. Nielens. Yeah. And it, what, just to, like, did he know her? Or was it just a no, run? complete stranger. Complete and he just stranger. what, he just started chasing her or what? He chased her. He told a big story about it, um, that she had virtually invited her own demise. She had been the one that was pestering him to see her up the road and... Um, I mean, the simple truth is he just chased after her when he saw her. What do you mean he see her up the road? Like, what, inviting him to her house or what? Ah, she was wanting to chum him along the road, as he would say now. <laughs> yeah, um, but people, people wouldn't know what that means. Well, like, you know... just to walk her along the road, right? to walk her along the road. Um, he, he, that was his version of it, but that's well, a classic psychopath's view because what they're saying is that person wanted to be murdered. And, yeah, I mean, what, uh, that person was desperate to be murdered well, because how they, is insisted, that, even they insisted. Even if they insisted, that, like, it still doesn't mean that they're asking to be hurt, let alone murdered. I mean, as it's I say, it's a trait of psychopaths. They say, oh, he was, he was asking for it, so I just obliged them. So, I just um, can't get, yeah. So, 
in this case... Um, and was this like at night or during the day or what? This was a... I think it was the 1st of January, 1956. Um, he had gone in to East Cobride, I think. He had walked a lot of... People did a lot of walking those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was walking up the road. She'd been visiting friends and suddenly her path crossed with Peter Manuel. Daytime though, first of January. Or... It was getting dark by the time okay, she so was walking late in the day, the road. right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, she, um, according to him, had befriended him and wanted him to see her up the road. Well, we're not listening is, to him because he's just, just full of shit. Yeah, oh, that's right. And of course, it's women just... always when it's dark at night invite complete strangers to walk them. Uh, yeah, I suppose in those days in the fifties, women probably didn't feel as threatened as they, they do nowadays. Nah, I think you don't see women would... out walking anymore at night. Certainly, in, in I think they always areas. would have felt that way. Yeah, do you not know uh, think? I think so, but in the 50s, people were more inclined to walk, you know, because they couldn't afford to do anything else. Yeah, I suppose. But I think they'd still be weary, you, you right? Get, you get somebody, you get a friend to go with you, probably. Yeah. You know, rather than befriend a Unless it's a short, like a short walk as well, right? Yeah. I mean, it just depends yeah. where. Anyway, to sum up, the Homicide Act of 1957 um, is just a piece of nonsense, in my view. The simple truth is that society in those days had no idea that they were dealing with somebody like Manuel. Yeah. Because they were trying to categorise murder into certain uh, sort of uh, areas. It's quite a naive law. It is, because, you know, they, they, they couldn't deal with somebody like Manuel who didn't kill for gain, he killed for pleasure. Yeah. Um, beyond them, their compre- well, lesbianism was beyond their comprehension. So, like, oh yes, oh obviously, it oh. absolutely would be right. I, I mean, we're going back to wife's duties again. <laughs> so crazy, so crazy. So, do you feel you've got any duties as a wife? Uh, I don't. I can't even understand the question. <laughs> that, that's that's how. I just thought far... to that one out you and see what you see if you went. Yes, I've got plenty of duties. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a bizarre, bizarre question. It's such a bizarre, like, thought that, uh, yeah, like I've said before, was this just in shape being a woman? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, before, like, I mean, even, like, see, even my mum used to tell stories about when she was at, um, she used to work for an oil company in the 70s. And how the men used to take it in turns in the office to like see who could like ping people's bras and stuff like that uh, when they're walking yeah. by. Yeah. Must have just been absolute dog shit being a woman. It must have. Just having to tolerate just moronic behaviour all day, every day. And not only that, but like smile and laugh just in case they might sexually assault you afterwards. I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying, it must have been Fucking awful. I'm so glad that I was <laughs> I was born later and didn't have to put up with any of that bollocks. Yeah, but do you think that sexism has totally been eradicated? No. <laughs> definitely not. Okay, that answers that. <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean there's still there's still 
I, I still sexism out there, hundred percent. But yeah, yeah, you know, I think it it improves all the time. I, like I'm thinking about, I don't, I don't know if I should say it, but one of our um, one of our younger relatives, she had somebody. I can't remember if he like grabbed her on the street or something like that, or he made like he made made some lewd comments at her. Some guy had sort of. I mean, basically sort of sexually assaulted one of our younger relatives. She, there was a policeman nearby. She reported it. He got picked up for it. And I think, I don't, I don't know what the outcome was, but I, when I remember when she told me, I was like, oh, that's awful that happened to you. But I was also like, wow, the police would do something about that. Like, because when I was 18, mm, if mm. a guy grabbed my ass when I'm walking down the street, I, I think what had happened was the guy grabbed her ass, if I remember, I might be have the details wrong, but um, if somebody had grabbed my ass when I was walking down the street when I was 18, there's no way the police would have done shit all for that. Like, if anything, they just probably, like, stood and laughed. So I do think things get better all the time. Yeah, yeah. So weird. Anyway... Manual. <laughs> yes, we digress. As I say, the Homicide Act of 1957 was trying to pigeonhole uh, people so that you could say that if a person is accused of uh, murder uh, in furtherance of a robbery, then it was a capital offence. But the nowadays... I think we've got a totally different approach to these things because we now know that sometimes an attempt to slot things into neat categories, um, it's not easy to do that because you can't really um, turn around and say, listen, this person committed this crime because of this. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes there's no explanation for some crimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was in respect of Peter Manuel because he did it because he enjoyed it. Yeah. It's quite simple. Um, Some things are just unexplainable, though. Oh, definitely. Oh, it's human, human nature is just so varied that you, you you can't really turn around and say, oh, it's all encompassed in one act. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, Peter Manuel um, was hanged, as I say, in 1958. Now, I listened to a programme that was an academic from Aberdeen suggested that Peter Manuel should not have been executed um, and there was a phone-in. Uh, this was started off as a, a debate on the radio and um, I can honestly say I've got no recollection of anybody phoning in to say that they agreed with the proposition that Manuel should not have been hanged. Every single person thought he should. Yeah. Wow. It was generally, it was a a respect thing by going out for a walk when he was getting hanged at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, It wasn't because you disapproved of the fact that he had... The state was murdering somebody in their name. The state was murdering somebody, yeah. And um, the past is a different planet, isn't it? Well, I mean, there was no way that anybody phoned up and said, you know, I'm I'm old enough to remember Peter Manuel um, and I don't think he should have been hanged. Yeah. Everyone agreed that he should be hanged. Just about everyone. 
I mean, it's quite interesting because there was a lot of American troops in the UK in 1958. And because he was an American by birth, they objected. Some of the troops objected. What, to him being hanged? To him being hanged. Because they said you can't do that because he's American. But I mean, Americans hang people crimes. all the time, right? Well, America's the, they still you know, do it. It's it's capital punishment in America is like ten a penny now. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, you know, they've got electric chair, they've got lethal injections. Not in every state, though. Right? No, no, it's, yeah. it depends. It depends. A lot of states have abolished it, but um, in those days, the I think that was the one of the, the few objections that they got. Uh, there was religious groups as well who said he shouldn't be hanged and because we could save his soul. Right. Now, I okay. mean, they never thought, here's a guy who's ki- killed eight people. Yeah, and, uh, they're his trying soul to save is his beyond soul. saving, I think, I think, at this I point. I think it is. I think it is. I mean, also, is that is that piece, right, where it's like, in in Peter Man- Manuel's case, and in again in like Robert Black's case, the crimes are horrific. But if you open up the door to that, that's the problem more than more than. The, I, I mean, I'm not keen on the state murdering anybody no, in anybody's no. name, but like you can't just say it's going to be these people because they they are always going to make mistakes, and then the state is murdering people in our name. Oh, there's been quite a few examples mis- of yeah. people being wrongly hanged. Oh, it's just uh, horrible. It's I mean, horrible. Derek Bentley, who we mentioned earlier, he was hanged. And I think his family tried to get him pardoned. Whether they succeeded or not, I can't remember. But they put uh, something in his gravestone like, murdered by the British state. Oh, Really? Because they felt so strongly about it that he hadn't done anything. I thought they buried them in the in the the place that they murdered them. Like is that... yeah, but sometimes the what they do is they release the body and oh, right. after a certain amount of years. Oh right. And of course, Peter Manuel's body is going to be dug up at some point um, because they're building a new Barlini. Oh really? Twenty twenty five. And if you want to claim his bones, you've got to put an application in. How do you know this? Are you thinking of doing it? Me, no. No, I'm not. <laughs> Are you? No, but why? 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 Why do you know this? Like, why? Because why did that come up in conversation? It's, it's sort of common knowledge that, um, you know, people should be buried within the confines of the prison. Yeah. It's unconsecrated. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's like your final punishment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but eventually they've got to turn around and say, well, we're building a new prison, so if anyone wants his bones back, they can get them. But, I mean, presumably it'd be like a family member or somebody? Yeah, possibly. Maybe somebody will. I you think know. just a random could go and fill out a form? For no, it? I don't think so. Let's face it, there are some pretty sick people who... Yeah, people who might... would sell it on the internet oh, or do would. all oh, sorts yeah, of dodgy yeah, shit right. with it, yeah. You know, you look up Peter Manuel's bones in eBay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're bound to find them, you're right. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, so the general trend... In 1958, was towards the abolition of capital punishment, but there was something about Peter Manuel that went against that trend. Yeah, it's, it's certain crimes, isn't it? Ah, uh-huh. and he was his crimes were so egregious that um, everyone just thought, well, okay, in his case, he deserves to die. That yeah. was that was a general view. 
Um, the only thing I could think of is that one possible answer to him bucking the trend, as it were, is that the varied nature of his crimes meant that no one was safe from him, regardless of age or sex or the time of day or whether they were at home or not. So what, so it wasn't just women then he murdered? Oh no, no, he murdered. Um, it was mostly women. Right. But he murdered Mr Smart when he was lying at home. But it was he, he murdered Mr Smart because he was trying to murder Mrs Smart and he was just in the way or what was the deal there? Well, it's impossible to say, um, but I, I will mention the smart murders. Okay, but yeah. It does look as if um, certainly she must have wakened up when he got it first oh, because he gets he get shot in the head and Mrs. Smart was found clinging to him. Oh, no. So she must have realised that she was going to get it next. Oh, God, that's awful. That's a terrible one, that, yeah. Now, after he was hanged, and this is something that, to modern sensibilities, it seems really odd that his mother, who was a very honest woman called Bridget, she gave a series of interviews to a newspaper after Peter was executed. Oh, right. This is the woman that gave him all the saints' names because uh-huh. she wanted to protect him. Yeah, yeah. And what did she say? Well, she said that... Um, he was intelligent, he was good at school, um, he had been disadvantaged by the fact that the murder, sorry, the, the family had moved from New York to Detroit in search of work. They'd returned to Lanarkshire in 1932, so he was only five. Oh, five, wow, he was only five. even younger. Um, but times were hard and they moved to Coventry, but which time uh, realised that Peter had become something of a social misfit. She remembered one day in particular um, when he came home from school and upset, and this is, I think I've touched on this already, because he said that he couldn't understand what the teacher was saying. Mm-hmm. And I think by that she meant he couldn't understand the teacher's accent. And a couple of hours after that, the police for the first time of many times to come, brought him home and explained that he'd been caught at a railway station trying to buy a ticket to Motherwell as he decided to go home and live there with his granny. Oh, wait, this is older than five, if he's... Oh, yeah, yeah, he was 11 at the time. 11? He was 11, but he just decided to go to Motherwell on the train. He just had enough. He'd had enough. The accent, but you think he'd adjust, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, he was getting moved about that much. Yeah, you know, I'm not making excuses for somebody like Manuel. No, but you've got to have some some reasoning behind these things to try and make you understand them a wee bit. Yeah. Um, After he was eleven, he was frequently involved in housebreaking, and housebreaking is surprisingly common apprenticeship for serial killers. Oh, this, really? is, this is how they cut their teeth, basically. Um, he wasn't your typical offender who broke in to steal. Uh, it was, wasn't for gain. He actually appeared to enjoy what he was doing so much that he was reluctant to leave. And 
and this is a scary bit, uh-huh. he would linger well beyond what anyone would have expected. And um, particularly if the police had been called and he was still hiding in the house. Really? And he would do that and wait till the police had gone in a really secure hiding place, wherever in the house. And sometimes what he would do is he would stay overnight and then come out of his hiding place and steal items like jewellery or whatever from the the house. Oh, jeez. And that was um, after the householders had obviously gone to bed and he would steal something conspicuous so that the family would wake up in the morning and then realise that the housebreaker was still in the house. Yeah. Uh, now that is quite a scary one. That is really, really scary. Yeah. You, it makes me think of like um, one of my friends, his, his, I think it was his boyfriend's mother, had a, a flat in a tenement block and she thought that there was things going missing from her house. And I can't remember if they set a camera up or whatever they caught this guy, but you know a lot of these tenements have like shared attic space. Mm-hmm. The, the, there had actually been somebody going down into the different mm-hmm. different flats. And like some of these tenements are like might the the attic space might be over like, I don't know, tons of flats if you oh, think about yeah, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this person was just going mm-hmm. up and like wandering around and going down whenever people were out of the house. How uh-huh. creepy is that? It's like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. Horrible. So it's, it's a bit like Peter Manuel again, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, something else he did was when he was older, he left his calling card so that he would smear dirty boots on beds and furniture and he would pour the t- contents of cans of food and soup and things all over carpets. He would deliberately just, mess things just up. Just being an arsehole, generally. Well, I think he was leaving his calling card. I think it was so that the police would know it was him. I thought he was intelligent, though, because at some point he, he would get caught, right? <laughs> then he's left I mean, his calling card in all these different but houses. That, yeah, yeah, but he was caught frequently, but yeah. that never put him off. He just enjoyed it. He had this personal vendetta against certain policemen. Uh, and also, I mean, this it does sound a bit like some kind of psychological thing as well. And like it's like it's some kind of protest against his mother or something, isn't it? If you're telling me in the 1950s the women had to keep the house clean and he's mm. out there making Aye, their houses yeah, filthy. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose that, that maybe there is some psychological aspect to that. Um, but I, was, I, I think... Above all, it was to do with the fact that the police would know it was him, but they couldn't prove it. Yeah. They would say that, you know, because a tin of soup was spilled all over the, the carpet, that uh, that proves it was manual. No, it doesn't. That's weird. Oh, uh-huh, it was just, I don't know. you know. I definitely think it's misogyny angle on that as well, though, definitely. Yeah, but I mean, you think that about everything. <laughs> anyway. Um, as I say, it was as if he had uncovered a dark nocturnal side to his nature, which he took great pleasure in inflicting in the rest of society. When he was an adolescent and he was growing up, he actually woke a girl who was asleep before he struck her with a hammer. And I think the idea was that he could experience her fear uh, and later on his behaviour escalated so that um, 
an attempted rape was like primary motivation for crimes to come. Uh, so wait, this isn't another murder. This girl he struck with a hammer. No, this is, no, it was about this twelve. This is just or one of his. When it, why? It was, he was a little kid. 13, no. He he woke this girl up by he actually woke her up and then hit her with a hammer. He 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 hates women and uh-huh. girls. Yeah, he does. Uh-huh. Um, but I I honestly um puzzled about this because God, he his his pleasure was seeing women or girls really upset. That sort of turned him on. This is like a Freudian nightmare. This guy he definitely hates his mother or and he was trying to escape to get to the grannies as well at age twelve. There's uh-huh. definitely an angle there, I'm telling you. Uh, there, there there could be, yeah. I mean it's uh, it's something that's still debated as to what motivated him. But, um, as I say, his behaviour escalated and he was charged with rape in 1946. Now, on the basis that his behaviour was motivated by the terror of his victims, I wondered if he'd actually committed this rape. He was convicted in 1946. But I got the papers... Uh-huh. The National Archives are brilliant. They, if you ask for the papers and you book them in advance, they bring them to your desk. They've got white gloves on. Uh, you know, they, they give you weights to hold things down. Right. It's absolutely brilliant. And um, I went through all the papers for the 1946 rape. And it occurred to me that if the victim's reaction to being attacked was the reason that he committed these offences uh-huh. and that stimulated him. Um, perhaps the, um, the the actual crime, crime of rape he was convicted for hadn't actually happened because he had been so excited that he didn't rape. He had actually attacked and Wait. enjoyed their terror. So what you're saying is, right, and I'm, I'm, I hate when I have to, like, decipher what you're saying because you can't say it out loud. What you're saying is he's he's made a mess in his pants. He couldn't get as far as raping well, that's, somebody. that's what I found. That's what I found. Right. That's what I found when I went through the papers. So he had, he'd, he'd made a mess in his pants? Yeah. Jesus. Um, but how did he get, how could they prosecuted him for, I mean... Just be, be, so he assaulted, he assaulted the woman. Well, he, he must have sexually assaulted her in other ways. Then, oh I yeah, assume. yeah. He um, he attacked three women in 1946, and the one he was convicted of the rape of, um, she had um, obviously told the police that he'd successfully raped her. What constitutes his rape? Like, well, it's got to be law. penetration. In the law, you have oh, to penetrate well, it's somebody. Got to be penetration, right? Okay. But in this this case, she had some gynecological um, operation or something, and she was in real pain. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't wasn't able to say that she'd been penetrated. She didn't. So she didn't. She didn't know. Or well, she thought she had been. Right. But as I say, from the, the papers in the forty six trial. Um, the forensic report disclosed what I had suspected and no semen was detected 
on or in the victim, on him, if it was found in his underwear, his shirt and his trousers. Now, he obviously denied the rapes. Right. But, yeah, I mean, there, there comes a sort of human contact point when you're instructing somebody. Right, I've got, I've got to ask another question, which uh-huh. I really hate asking my uncle. The, does penetration have to be with a penis in order for it to be rape in um, the 1950s? I would assume today yeah. a- anything. Oh, anything. Yeah. Anything goes. Yeah. But in the, in the 46, um, it was just a natural assumption. And in fact, I think people were inclined not to go into any great details. If the woman said she'd been raped, that was enough. Okay. Whereas now you've got to specify but, I mean, what exactly has happened. He could have hurt her in other ways, right? And that's like... Well, he dragged her down an embankment and he rolled her over and... He so was, she couldn't uh, see what he was doing. Well... she knew she was hurt. Um, she was in real pain. Yeah. Um, but she thought she'd been raped. But as I say, the forensic report showed that, in fact, he had ejaculated uh, before he had raped her. Right, okay. So, right. So she was... So just to clarify, this is horrible. I hate having these conversations. So just what she she was horrifically sexually assaulted, but the the point about her not being raped is because you think that he is like extra turned on just by the fear element, oh, yeah. yeah, rather than like the actual sexual act itself. The sexual act for him was something that I think was secondary. Yeah, I think it was a power thing for him. He had control over this person's life, just even for a few minutes, and that was sufficient to make him think. You know, how do he, they even come into this world, these people? Like, how does that happen? Well, um, like, how do, I mean, how do they just wake up one morning and then they've got this thing in them? They always have it. So strange, isn't it? Well, you know, sex offenders um, don't think they're doing anything wrong. You've said that before. They don't, just don't honestly get think they're doing anything wrong. What they think is it's perfectly natural to like kids or to like all these things that society now says are completely wrong. Yeah. And yet a lot of these people, I've acted for quite a few people who um, don't think they've done anything wrong. And they'll, they'll plead guilty and they'll get a sentence. And then There's later like on, they'll no say, remorse for what their actions say, are. You know, why did the judge give me so many years for that? What? And you say, well, because, you know, it is a crime. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, um, deep down, it's not really a crime. That's a psychopath. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think so. And there's no doubt about it. I mean, um, he was a psychopath. Oh, yeah, he, I mean, he 100% this guy is. Oh, I mean, yeah. anybody that's not not got empathy for their own actions, that's the classic sign of a psychopath. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That said, he was engaged to a woman who was a bus conductress. Right. From Carluc. And that was in 1955. And I think there was a chance of him living a more normal life because when he stayed with his parents, as serial killers often do, uh-huh. um, he stayed with his parents and they wouldn't even ask him what he was doing. 
I think his father was frightened of him, to be honest. Right. His father wouldn't challenge him or anything. And not only that, if the police came to the door, he would say he was in all night. He would automatically just give him an alibi. Oh, really? Uh, the father, yeah. What? He was, he was an odd character. But um, Anna O'Hara was this lady from Carluke. Right. I think, possibly I'm being naive, but he had a chance of um, setting up a home with her and living a fairly normal life. Um, at his parents' house, he's able to give full vent to his strange compulsion to go out at night without anyone trying to question him or control him. His parents just let him do whatever he wanted. And um, Anna had seen something about him that frightened her. She didn't really like it. Um, but he was a perfect gentleman to her, apparently. Right. A perfect gentleman. He, he, he was engaged to her. And but he didn't get married to her. No, he didn't. But um, but like she she moved to England uh, after she'd split up from him. To get away from him. Well, I don't know. I think she just... She was, saw something in him that scared her. So there must have been something. Yeah, exactly. Cause... And then the other thing is, don't you reckon these people, they're like, it's like people that commit domestic violence. They don't just start day one, domestic uh -huh. violence. They they are charming. Then they get somebody coaxed in and then they manipulate oh, yeah. them. And then the domestic violence starts. Like uh -huh. maybe like, you, I think it's a bit naive to think that they would, you could have had a normal life. He's, he's a grade A psychopath with no empathy. Mm-hmm. Who hates women? Well, as I say, he was a perfect gent to Anna O'Hara. Because he hadn't married her yet. He hadn't married her. Yeah. yeah. He was a perfect gent to her mother. He used to bring her chocolates and he was a, it was, it was a psychopath's charm, basically. Mm. And um, she uh, had, as, as I say, moved to Lancashire, I think it was. And just after my book was published in 2008... The Daily Record got a phone call from somebody in Lancashire, I think it was. It was somewhere down in England anyway. And her grandson, Anna's grandson, had said, I see this book about Peter Manuel. Did you know who he was? And she said, I was engaged to him. Oh my God. He, he had no idea. The grandson or the family had no idea. Well, you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't be like, oh, uh, you, you wouldn't I had be a, boasting about yeah, it. Yeah, I had a failed romance with a grade uh -huh. A psychopath uh -huh. serial killer. I know. But it gives wow. you an idea what she was like because she had just started a new life completely. Good for totally her. Totally forgotten about him. Good for her. Um, she was uh, like a survivor. Oh, she was, yeah. Um, now, he reacted very badly to the split from Anna because the day that they were meant to get married, he attacked a girl called Mary McLaughlin. And that was obviously significant because that was the day he should have got married to Anna. Mm -hmm. uh, he indecently assaulted Mary at knife point. Um, she thought her end had come because he was going about cutting her head off and all this sort of stuff. And uh, after a while, though, he characteristically um, stopped talking about it. Um I think we know the reason why he was just what turned do you mean? on. Mid assault, he just stopped. Mid assault. He just went after, quiet. After he had sort of, I'm going to cut your head off, I'm going to cut your head off, um, he suddenly became okay. He was okay. And um, 
it sounds like it's some kind of like break from reality, doesn't it? Like he's having some kind of breakdown. Well, but it was the same day he should have married Anna. I know, but maybe that's so. It was a, a sort of getting back at women type thing, isn't it? Oh, you know, just, oh, he's a she she was pretty brave because um, he said to her, um, "Do you want a cigarette or something?" And she said, "Oh yeah, you know, I'll take the cigarettes." And she just bluffed him and bluffed him until um, she went to the police. Oh, really? So she sort of talked her way out of... She talked her way out of it. But yeah. He threatened He actually said to her, I'll see you home. Really? And she said, no, but I'll be fine from here. Because they lived pretty close to where Manuel lived. Right, okay. Um, and then she went straight to the police? She went to the police. The police took it seriously. And this is like his pre, pre-murdering days. Uh-huh. This is... Wow. Wow. And he... Why did he not get locked up then? I mean, surely that was like. Well, I tell you what, there was a, there was a program in called for all sorts in, of things then. In plain sight, I don't know if you saw that. No. Uh, there was a program that was made about the life of Peter Manuel, and uh, it was called Muncie. Uh, he was one of the cops involved, and I was an advisor in that program, and. Um, there was one scene that was in court, and that was in a. I can't remember what year it was now. Was it 1955 or something? Um, he went to trial, defended himself, and was acquitted. It was an Airdrie. What? <laughs> and the jury accepted what he said, which was, we were going out, we were, we were friends. He, did, he didn't put his case to her. He just missed that out because if you're a party defender, the rules aren't strictly applied to you. Uh-huh. So he just defended himself and um, she apparently, um, you know, gave her evidence, wasn't believed. What? And he was... So this insanely brave woman who's managed to persuade him not to murder her uh-huh. that's been sexually assaulted then bravely goes to the police and isn't rejected by the police, which I feel like back then is yeah. a bit of a shock in itself. Know, so, right, yeah. so like they clearly believed it. And then it gets as far. And then this Looney Tunes decides he's going to defend himself. Uh-huh. And then this even more Looney Tunes jury... Listens to him. I quitted him. What the hell? That's <laughs> you know. Oh my god, that's so crazy! Like, I can't believe that. Well, there was near the sheriff court, and it had serious repercussions, in my view, for future victims, as it was a bit of a an annoyance to him that anyone should live, so they could give evidence against him. Oh my God. So that had serious repercussions for the future victims because she gave her evidence. Um, she wasn't believed. Um, she left the court and Manuel's father approached her at a bus stop and spat on her <gasps> because he said, you know, she had just made all this up. What the hell? I know. I God, know. well, that's where his scummy, shitty attitude comes from, isn't it? It must Co- be. Uh, his dad was a bit odd, and yeah, he was a he was a 
I think he was a local councillor in in the area. Oh my god. Um so as I say, um this had real repercussions for future victims and it also made him think he was above the law. Because, you know, he could even commit an offence like he did to Mary McLaughlin. Yeah. And they still couldn't get him. Yeah. They still couldn't get him. Unbelievable. So um, it was just a few months later when he attacked Anne Neelands in the golf course. And uh, that was the 2nd of January 1956. Uh, now, in respect of Anne Neelands, as I say... Um, the judge directed the jury to acquit him on that charge, despite a long rambling confession that he'd met her and she had said, you know, walk me up the road, please walk me up the road. I mean, just all nonsense. But, um, you my... see, the judge wanted, the judge pushed the jury to acquit him. Oh, he, he directed the jury to acquit him. Why? Because he said there was insufficient evidence. This was his first trial, this judge. He was a formidable guy, Lord Cameron. He really was. But this was his first trial, was Peter Manuel. And um, it left a huge impression on him, obviously. But he decided, I think it's probably down to the fact that... Um, insufficient evidence as in what... I, just, I can't get my, He said he did it. Well, he admitted speaking to her that night, and he admitted no, he did. He didn't admit the murder. He said that he'd met her, right? And basically, um, there were seven other murder charges, and six of them were capital. Right. So, so he just I, wanted I to focus judge, on that rather took, than took he, he view, was trying to get more. It was easier just to focus um, on the others. Yeah, just get rid of that one. Yeah. You know, I, I could see why. Still. So we're just going to leave it there, this episode, because that is already really, really long and we still have a lot to talk about. Um, maybe we should have split this into three rather than two, but uh, you've got the gist of what's going on and next week we're going to get a bit more into the crimes that Peter Manuel committed um, and some more of the background on that. If you like our podcast then please like and share with your friends we would love to hear your feedback and ideas on twitter at murder scotland if you'd like any more information on our sources or alan's books you can find us at www.murderscotland.com murder scotland is written presented and produced by alan nickel presented produced and edited by me julie lament our consulting producer is paige henderson Music is called Moments by Adrian Walther and a special thanks to Steve Garside and Miriam Watson for their unending support and patience with me and Alan. <laughs>